Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Oh, wait, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things oh, that made lovely, England. Yeah. Oh, dear. We've started. Go! Hello, welcome. We are back. This is The Things That Made England. It's a dynamic duo. It's myself, Royfield Brown, and one, David Crowther. And we've decided to do things a little differently. Dependent on how this goes, we might be doing a three-part or or a four-part thing. Only history will be able to tell how exactly this is going to work out, but we're going to give it a stab. We're going to look at political parties and how they have created modern England. Now, It's somewhat going to be confusing in that where England starts and Britain ends and vice versa is somewhat of a mess in this period because we're going to start with the Glorious Revolution and we're going to go all the way up to the modern day. We're going to try, this might not work out, so don't hold us to this, we're going to try and break this up into four chunks. The four chunks are this. We're going to go from the Glorious Revolution up to the Great Reform Act in 1832 because I think that's a period of modern English for slash British politics, which, yes, the antecedents of the modern world are most definitely there, but it's very, very different. Whigs and Tories. Then we're going to look at the 19th century up until World War One, because then we do have the, the, the formation of the, the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party. And it kind of feels familiar territory to us in 2022, if you look at that period. Then we're going to have another show which basically looks at post-World War One. And the fact that we have near a complete adult suffrage, though all women can't vote until 1930. But And we have the Labour Party. And then the plan is, if this works out, we're going to have a show where you, good listener, can fire some questions to us. And we'll have some appendices type reflections on British for slash English political parties. So that's what we're going to try to do. And as is the way, because David is the historian, David's decided to go go deep in, into this and start with the Glorious Revolution and, and the 18th century. But I believe, David, you have a fundamental question which you need to pose. I first. do. But first of all, let me say hello to everybody, because, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk yet. We were reflecting, weren't we, before we started this, that the reason we're podcasters is that neither of us can stop talking. It's a fundamental reason. And I realise that is definitely true with you. Can I also say <laughs> it's lovely to be on a video link because I can see just how beautiful you are, Royfield. Could I just say that? You're looking great. I'm wasted on a podcast is what people always tell me. when they You are. Me. You've got a face made for television, mate. Anyway, so that's... I'd go, I'd go so far as to say I've got a face for the movies. I didn't want one <laughs> yeah. step up from TV. I think that's going a bit far, to be honest. Anyway, so, yes, 
I have a question for you, yes, before we start off. Mm-hmm. We're going to go back a little bit further, actually, than the, the Glorious Revolution. We're going to go to the exclusion crisis. But mm-hmm. to start, Royfield, big question for you then. What are political parties? Political parties are a group of individuals who come together because they're kind of motivated by similar ideological goals or a socio-economic view of the world. So they see the world in, in, in a similar way to each other. So then have similar goals as to how to maintain that or to how to achieve that those goals. Also, a powerful force in political parties is who you are against. Maybe if you can't quite find your allies, but you can actually say, well, most definitely this grouping are ideological bet noirs so then that can also force a group in as well so fundamentally it's people who have a similar socio-economic view of the world ideological view of the world and then sometimes they also are people who are defined by who they perceive as being their en- enemies okay very good so let me give you another couple of de- definitions because you might be a surprise to you, Royfield, is it a surprise to you that to, mm-hmm. to realise that political parties have not always been a part of the political process and have not been always been popular? And I suppose they're not actually that popular as a concept now either, are they? But anyway, so A.V. Dicey, who said that parties are conspiracies which sacrifice the public interests to sectional interests, which is a bit mean, mm. isn't it? Jonathan Swift was very cross about political parties when they started appearing in the 17th century he raged about that damned business of party while in the 18th century edmund burke however is a bit more positive so he rather like you he talked about a body of men united for promoting by their joint endeavors the national interest upon some particular principle in which they all agree okay so he's pretty positive Mm -hmm. is your edmund but a more recent writer, sort of beginning of the 20th century, a chap called Anston D. Morse, varied that a bit and said a political party is a durable organisation united by common principles, which has for its immediate effect the advancements of the interests and realisations of the ideals of a particular group or group which it represents. The difference there mm. being not necessarily in the national interests. What do you think, Royfield? What's your philosophy how are they acting a political party what does it do to national interest but all political parties and especially if we look at the period that we're going to look at whether it's Whigs or Tories would say that they have the national interest at heart but it comes from a sectional place so that so the Tories are kind of the the old aristocracy the Whigs are the the gentry and and then it's going to become the merchant class, so so to speak. What what was really interesting for me whilst doing this research was to discover how much of your, your Burks, your Locks, etc., how much of their philosophy actually is, is Whig philosophy. That behind the Whigs there is a view of the world and a view of progress and how you get to some level of enlightenment whereas the tories are landed vested interest and keeping the order both of them would say that their view is is in the national interest but they come from this sectional place yes i mean i think i agree with you i suppose the point i might move on to then is just to point out that given that range of opinion and jonathan swift in particular talking about you know this damn business of parties it hasn't always, A, it hasn't always been that way, and B, it hasn't always been a popular idea. In the 17th century in particular, where we're going to start, and indeed most of the 18th century, the idea that we break down into parties is actually pretty alien to Parliament. What you have is some groups of people who get together around leaders, and we'll talk about that a bit more, And in the middle, you've got this mass of people who are independently minded and might vote at any particular time either way. So this idea we have Mm. now of these solid groups of whipped people who do what they're told, because if they don't, they won't get into parliament, is completely alien to 17th and 18th century parliamentary politics. And 
when that breaks down, people hate it. People think these are people who are doing things in their own interests, not the national interests. That, that's a great point, because one thing which I did learn with the research that I did was our categorization of a whole swath of this period is a 20th century and a 21st Absolutely. century view back because they didn't necessarily say that they were exclusively Whig or Tory. And you have many people who says, well, I'm an independent Whig. Whig the Pitt the Younger is a case in point. He called himself an independent Whig, Absolutely. but we class him as a Tory. And indeed, Edmund Burke, so, yes. who is you know, the, seen as the philosopher of the Conservative Party now, he was a Whig, or in his view, he was a Whig. Mm, exactly. It's utterly fascinating to, to understand this period because, yeah, and I think that's so it's right and proper that we do view this separately from the 19th century, from the Great Reform Act going on, because we have party politics then that which we truly understand, whether we understand the positions of each party, that that's a case in point. But it is, you are one thing and another, you define yourself in large part, with who you're opposed to. And that's most definitely not the case in the 18th century. OK, so the other the point about parliamentary politics in this period also is to stress that thing about representation. So the second point I'm going to make before I get into the history, and this is really boring of me, I'm sorry, but this is that point I really love to make. So during the Brexit debate and all the rest of it, there was a question, a survey that was done about what the role of an MP was. And the question was put in a, a binary way, which said, on the one hand, they are there to do what their constituents tell them to do. And the other one is to act on behalf of the constituents in what they believe to be the best interests of those constituents. And only 17% got the answer right. Everybody else thought their MP should do exactly what they tell them to do. So in, in effect, only work for the people who voted for them, not for the constituency as a whole. So most of the people in this country from that survey do not understand the principle of representative government, which is the underpinning principle for pretty much, possibly except Switzerland, every democracy in the world. How does that make you feel, Roy? Again, it's somewhat tricky looking at this period when so many people were disenfranchised. Definitely by the time you get to the towards the end of the 18th century, I don't know if we've actually started this or not, David, but the Whigs most definitely are trying to widen the franchise. Definitely, maybe the end of the 18th century is a little bit early. Early 19th century, trying to widen the franchise because they see that there are sections of, of the society who have a stake in it that don't have a voice. Okay. There was a famous definition of representative government by a chap called mm. Madison, who I believe is an American. I think you probably know more about Madison. He's one of the writers of the Declaration of Independence, isn't he? And all that. Of the thing. Of that thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thing. The, 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 the traitor's yeah. chart. It's got, a fa it's, got, it's got a rectangle named after yeah, him or something. something like that, yeah. Anyway, he says this. He says the effect of a representative democracy is to refine and enlarge the public views by passing through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of the nation. Edmund Burke says your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment. And he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion. And David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, said that the problem with democracy or one man, one vote is that incurable narrowness of soul that prefers the immediate to the remote. And that is what the representative is supposed to stop happening. Because the point is, as we start our period, most of the people in Parliament believed that representative democracy was already in place because to them, one man, mm. one vote did not mean democracy. That meant the rule of the mob. What a, mm. an MP would do was represent what they believed the best interests of the nation and their constituents in particular was. And they would try to represent everybody, not just their own class. Now, obviously, as things turn out, the way that people are, people very much represent their own class. But they do have 
an understanding of that responsibility to think more broadly, and often they do. But I don't think there's any doubt mm. they're clearly biased towards their own their own class and attitude to that class. But I think that's a point worth making, that there are other ways also to get involved. So when we start around the exclusion crisis, for example, there is a vast amount of mass petitioning that goes on. Those people mm. who sign, the tens and tens of thousands who sign those petitions are not voters, but they are having a voice in the political process. Anyway, sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I think the other thing to understand about that period is politicians were very paternalistic for some very good reasons, you know. Most people couldn't write. Most people couldn't read or write. Most people had not actually gone through any level of a formal education as we'd understand it today. So you do understand them saying, I am going to do this and this is in your best interests. This is kind of key to really kind of understanding why so many sections of the economy of society were excluded initially from the democratic process. But you make a really interesting point about petitions, that there was some level of an acknowledgement, even though governments weren't necessarily bound by petitions, of the great lump and mass of people. And also, if we, if we are to go back into history, as you rightly say one man one vote it is the mob you know there's all the examples of antiquity where that was most definitely the case and that's what you know the the posh are, are worried about let's kick off shall we i think it's probably also worth noting that around the time of the exclusion crisis only a very small number of elections so just before the civil war only about 20 percent of elections were actually contested so what used to happen is that Buggins got together, you know, they, whoever they were, what political persuasion the gentry got together and the magnate of the area. And they said, oh, who should we have? Who should we have? Uh, David did it last time. Uh, but let's, have, let's have Royfield, shall we? Royfield? All right, Royfield? OK, we'll put him up. And the electors, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll only have one person to vote for them, so Royfield can have his turn. All right? Yeah, OK. That's the way it worked. And even in 1832... Only 30% of elections were actually contested. So, OK, the exclusion crisis before the Glorious Revolution, actually, was about the worry that James, Duke of York, was going to become king after Charles. And there was a problem with James. The problem with James was... He's a Catholic. He was a Catholic. So the Whigs try really hard to get and start a whole mass of petitions to get him excluded. And this creates the two parties, and they start insulting each other. <clears throat> and this is where we get the names for the Whigs and the Tories. The derivation of which I'm sure you know, Royfield. The Tories were Irish brigands, outlaws, and the Whigs comes from lowland Scotland, and I've forgotten exactly, but it's a Scottish term of, you know, of insult. Yeah, yeah very sort of low-status cattle drovers and all the rest of it. So, yes, they're insults. So those who wanted James and hereditary succession to succeed and actually believe in absolute royal power, they get called the Tories and they take this insult. And as so often happens, they say, yeah, we're going to call ourselves Tories. And the, the same happens the other way. The Whigs take on this name and use it proudly. The Whigs prefer the power of Parliament. And that is a basic division that will last for, well, at least the next 50 years and probably beyond, although it begins to transmogify. Tories are about the church, the Anglican church specifically, that everybody, they're conformists, they're, everybody has to have a uniform religion. They don't necessarily believe in absolute power in the sense of Louis XIV, you know, no parliaments and just do what I say. But they do believe in hereditary succession and that parliament has no role and the people have no role in electing a king. Just, just on that, though, the Tories are the establishment church. They very much yeah. are the Anglican church, but they're supporting a Catholic king. How does that work? And they will have to make a choice about this because... Their primary concern is about conformism and hereditary succession and the absolute power of the king. So that's the big one for them. They are, in effect, Jacobites. So like many 
Scots, and indeed particularly Highland Scots, they want the Stuart dynasty to follow on whatever the, the religion involved here. That's the primary thing. And they get called, accused by the Whigs of being Jacobites when the Hanoverian succession happens. And that does them a lot of damage, as we'll, as we'll come to. They begin to transmogrify that because Jacobitism is, you know, dies pretty much everywhere outside, outside Highland Scotland, a little bit in Lowland Scotland, but not much. And it becomes a killer because, of course, the Hanoverians have a look at the any Jacobitism and say, right, well, you're not going to get into government then, pal. So that transmogrifies a bit towards Anglicanism, then focusing on that side of things. But you also made an interesting point about the basic difference between them. And, and Burke, I think, says a few things about this. And oh, I think this is Samuel Johnson, actually, who says a wise Tory and a wise Whig will agree that there's not that much difference as the 18th century progresses between Whig and Tory because they come from the same class. But one is oriented towards change. The other is oriented towards stability. And the king represents order and stability, as does the church. So that's where the Tories' DNA is. Mm. Okay, so that's the exclusion crisis. Everybody goes potty. And then, of course, as you say, we get the Glorious Revolution, so-called by the English. The Scots are a bit more iffy about how glorious it is, and the Irish are very convinced there's nothing glorious about it whatsoever. Because one of the attractive things about the Stuart kings is actually they're a good deal more open to toleration. As it happens, the Glorious Revolution puts Mary Stuart on the throne and William comes with her and he is a Protestant. At this time and under Anne as well, and indeed into George I, the first Hanoverian, there really aren't parties. The king and queen choose their ministers. Ministers report directly to the monarch and their loyalty is to the monarch, not to the Privy Council or the Cabinet or anything like that. The idea we have now of Cabinet responsibility and a Prime Minister doesn't exist. Everything is driven by the they rule, and the monarch controls patronage. So we see somebody like Anne trying during her reign to, to balance her government. She has a few Whigs and a, and a few Tories, doesn't she? Yeah, absolutely right. That's absolutely right, and it's quite the right point to make. But nonetheless, the Whigs and Tories are st still there. So there's this expression that somebody uses, the rage of parties between 1688 and 1715 and, and the Hanoverians, because it's who will succeed the Stuart dynasty is a raging issue still, because the Hanoverians are sort of a country mile away. I think they're 15th in, in succession or whatever. They're a far closer Catholic of hereditary right. So the rage of parties carries on till 1715. There are elections every two and a half years. But yes, as you say, Anne and, and William, they're trying to make a balance between these, all these factions. David, yeah. very obviously, there is, there is parliament and there is the government. Did we have government benches then? At what point do we actually have Parliament where the two parties actually sit opposite each other and square off in that regard? Do you know, I'm not actually sure when we start having that, but at this period, certainly what you have is you have the monarch or their, their representative would attend Parliament, so they might be there. So there are these drawings of the time where you've got the, the monarch there under a canopy of state. Though normally they sit in the House of Lords, of course, and one of the things you've got to remember at this time is the Lords can legislate. The House of Commons is becoming the most important space, but the House of Lords is still extremely powerful and where the magnates sit and therefore where all that patronage power resides. But what you have is the Privy Council grouping together. So in a sense, that's the government sitting together. But absolutely, there's no them and us. There's no front benches and opposition benches. You've got the Privy Councillor sitting together and probably the factions, the people who do very much align with, I don't know, Charles James Fox or the Elder Pitt or whatever, will probably group around them. But there's no formal arrangement of Parliament because Parliament is a group of, of representatives who are there to make decisions. Mm. I think what changes then when we get to the first prime minister is that it begins to become more important 
that you have to control a majority in the House of Commons in order to function. One of the reasons for this is money, that the House of Commons has established the right to vote subsidies. The House of Lords doesn't have it. The monarch can't do it on their own, although they have some prerogative rights. And of course, in the 18th century, it's a century of war and expensive war. And for once, Britain gets involved in those wars, particularly for its navy. And navies and armies cost a shed load of money, and therefore you need to control parliament. So the development of parliamentary parties is intimately involved with the increasing power of the House of Commons. Gotcha. Who then is the first prime minister? Royfield. Bobby Walpole. Bobby Walpole, absolutely right. And why is that, do you think? The Lady Bird book of British history would say something like, when the Hanoverians come over, especially George I, not only could he not speak English, but he wasn't really that interested in the, the minutiae of government. So you have Parliament becoming more important and taking on slowly but surely some of the royal prerogatives in terms of actually running the country. Hence, less than 10 years after George uh, puts his bum on the throne, you have this position, which doesn't get called the prime, it's not called the prime minister at the time, but you have somebody who, who leads government in, in the commons. That's absolutely right. In fact, Walpole says, I unequivocally deny that I am sole and prime minister. Actually, the idea of a prime minister is seen as unconstitutional. You know, it's absolutely wrong. There should be no prime minister. Ministers report to the monarch. It's a derogation of, of royal power. But you're absolutely right about George I doesn't speak any English. He's more interested in Hanover, which is one reason we get involved in all these European wars. George II is less interested too. Also, their choice of who they're going to work with, as I've said, it's not going to be anybody with Tory views because the Tories are Jacobites. So that they would prefer a different monarch to be on the throne. Mm. And, despite the, and they dump that because they have to. Nonetheless, that whiff stays around for the George I and George II. So what you have is a very long period of Whig power. And, and the one thing which I didn't really appreciate, well, I didn't know, let alone appreciate, was when George comes to the throne, that there's almost a bit of a, a social revolution, that a lot of the old Tories are completely gone from not just government positions, because that's taken as a given, but throughout British English society, that, you know, in the army, in the navy, in, in finance, etc., these people are fundamentally told stand down. And then this gives us some 30, 40 years worth of um, Whig dominance, not just in Parliament, but also throughout the country. Absolutely right. I mean, Tories almost disappear. They just cling on with some residual power in Parliament. But basically, what you have is these Whig families which absolutely dominate Parliament. I tend to think of Whigs as because they're very connected with the merchant class and they they want religious toleration for nonconformists, I've always kind of thought of them in the back of my mind as being sort of liberals, writ, early liberals. But of course, they're absolutely not. These Whigs are incredibly rich, incredibly powerful aristocrats with enormous contacts and families. And the whole Whig thing, it's about family connections. And they dominate Parliament because they have in their hands most of the control of patronage. So if there are any jobs going, a Tory doesn't get it, a Whig gets it. So as you say, the Tories have written out of politics at all levels, not just in Parliament, but in any kind of public service, they really struggle to get, to get a job. The idea that Walpole is the first Prime Minister is that he begins to get a certain amount of autonomy, largely, or at least partly, because of what you say, that George I and II don't really get involved in the minutiae of government. So now it's not the king, or it's less the king that controls patronage. It's more Walpole. So people begin to look to him. Policy begins to be set by Walpole, very much in consultation with the monarchs. But what Walpole as prime minister begins to be associated with national identity as the leader of national identity rather than the king or that 
balance changes. It's not a, not a quick black and white thing. 18th century parliaments are delightfully, coruscatingly and extravagantly corrupt. If you're going to get on, you have to butter up the right people. You have to get the right jobs. And saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to vote on that for a matter of principle, consigns you to being an independent MP, not a minister or with a particular job or whatever. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Anyway, so that's, that's Walpole. It carries with it the stench of managerial politics, the start of political parties. One of the crucial roles, of course, in a political party is the chief whip. So, you know, the, we think these days the people who, can, who manage parties and make sure people are in the right place at the right time, voting in the right way, or is the whip. And now, these days, if you have the party whip removed, you're dead. And whippers in is a term, obviously, that comes from hunting, whipping in the hounds. And whippers in appear in 1714. They're nothing like the organised people that they will become but that role appears and that's part of the start of managerial politics okay so we've got now a whig dominance which goes all the way through to set the 1740s and actually beyond anyway george third george number three just before we, we jump on to him why do we have this sharp decline the tory party from the 1740s to the to the 1780s in effect there's only one party. Everyone is a Whig. Of course, there are factions. There are different types of Whigs. But what actually happens to the Tory party then? Is this quite simply the, the second Jacobite rising? So the Tories need to hide, basically. The Tory party does still exist. There is still that basic separation that you pointed to earlier between Whig and Tory. There are still people who believe in order and church and monarchical power as opposed to trade war parliament so they're still there it's just that they're excluded from power because george the first says i'm not going to have anybody with a whiff of jacobitism in my as a minister george the second follows that lead generally and so when we get to george the third that situation does change and you begin to have ministers which have a more Tory orientation getting back into into power. And indeed, George III tries to turn the clock back and reassert the power of the monarch to appoint the ministers he chooses rather than the ministers that can control Parliament. Actually, after Walpole, you do get Tories coming back into power. I think Lord North, for example, he's counted as a Tory. Mm. Actually, well, I was going to ask you this at the beginning. What did you do at school history that you can remember? Because, I mean, I did a whole load at Key Stage 1, 2 and 3, and I can't remember any of it. First year, Romans. We would have done the Normans at some point. God, you can remember all that stuff. Yeah, by the time we got to Mr. Clapham's class, we did World War II. So that's when I was 14, 15 I can't remember what we did in, in the last year. It must have been the, the, the post-war world, I, I, I presume. That would have been me in, in senior school. Yeah. Right. And, and, and don't forget, we, you, you always have to throw in the, the bloody Tudors. I didn't do the Tudors. Really? Everybody complains about the Tudors. I did not do the Tudors at any point. I did do the Armada, I think, when I was a, mm-hmm. when I was a, a nip. But apart from that, I did the long 19th century. That's all I remember, really. Yeah. The long 19th century. That also... Obviously, the Nazis, everybody does the Nazis. My, my claim to fame was in Mr. Clapham's class. I literally didn't have to do any work. I could just put my feet up on the table. And every now and then he says, Brown, what was the date of Battle of Stalingrad? And I go, oh, yeah. you know, 1943, oh, nice. 1942, 43. So, and he go, OK, as you were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you actually 
Did you actually put your feet up on the table? Quite literally. It was it was great. It was great. I, I just did any other work in that class. Uh, that's very good. That's it, very it, good. Was, it was awesome. Me and Mr. Clapham, we, we, we were like that. Anyway. You like that, your pals. Hmm. Anywho, so, okay, so you sound so you've got a bit more, maybe a bit more variety to my experience. Right, so famously... George III refuses to play ball. He says, there's no way. I'm going to choose my own ministers. I don't care whether they can command and control the House of Commons. He's made that he chooses, therefore, to roll back the rights of Parliament, is to appoint the Earl of Bute, his Scottish mate, as the Prime Minister. This is what is called putting the Bute in. That is a joke. Well, is that it? Yeah, come on, putting the Bute in. I mean, that's a great <laughs> gag. Come on. Yeah, wow. Casting my pearls. Us history nerds and our humour. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't work. I mean, Butte lasts a couple of years. Everybody hates him. And people refuse to do what he says. And he cannot rule. And this is the last ad- attempt by a monarch to install a PM that does not have parliamentary support. I mean, there are plenty of unpopular PMs after that. I mean, there are loads of PMs. Walpole is very much an exception. So John, so Selborne, for example, is incredibly unpopular. Last year, somebody said of him that no politician who held office with Selborne ever wished to do do so again, which is a nice quote. <laughs> and what you what you have here is a constant moving around of factions and people within it. And what you begin to get when we arrive at the younger pit is that the radical Whigs begin to separate. So although Pitt calls himself a a Whig initially, he's branded as the first, you know, really dominant Tory because he is about stability and order over change and radicalism. And the big event that happens is, of course, what happens over the channel, which is, start for 10. You want about the French Revolution I and am on the Revolutionary French Wars Revolution. and all that kind of stuff. So that transforms Pitt's ministry. Pitt, I think, has a right to be considered one of the great prime ministers, whether you're a Tory or liberal in mind. He does lots of very, very Tory, conservative, order-oriented things because... Basically, Britain makes a choice. It makes a choice to go with the principles of the French Revolution or to reinsert, reassert Burke's principles of an organic constitution that grows and reflects the nature of the, of the people. So the Whigs begin to split, and what you get is a radical section, which is led by Charles James Fox, very famously. David, David, do, do you not know your audience here? What was that? What have I done? All right. What so all, right, all the American listeners are saying, wait on a minute. What, what about the American Revolution in all of this? Oh, and it okay. has to be said, it has to be said that with our telling of our national story, that that barely gets a mention. However, what one of the things that Pitt does do when he comes into power is to raise taxes. Now, the last time... I did any kind of studying on that American kerfuffle that went on over there. It was all about imposing taxes on those ungrateful colonists. That we that in 1786, our national debt, which was 243 million quid, which sounds like a horrendous amount of money now, let alone then. I know in terms of government terms, 243 million quid isn't anything, you know, of which a third of the budget went to pay interest. One of the first things that Pitt does to reorganise the finances is to raise taxes. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. Pitt does indeed raise taxes, although the taxes that cause all the trouble come under North and those administrations. And the final Treaty of Paris that is signed in 1783, which I think you just told me, and that's under the Pitt-North, the Fox-North coalition, So, which is a Tory Whig thing combination so Pitt comes in really post that and the big challenge that Pitt faces after quite a few years anyway in power is the French Revolution 
and Britain has to choose. And Charles James, initially, people are very enthusiastic about the, the French Revolution. But then, of course, the terror happens and people begin to become a good deal less keen. And actually, identities are formed around the French Revolution that it's not clear that the British public will jump the way it jumps, especially with people like Wilkes supporting the American Revolution and Payne and all the rest of it, very much favouring the Americans. Still, the French, when the French Revolution comes, in the end, it is the, the British conservatism and Burke, the idea of an organic constitution rather than a written logical constitution, that wins out and we get the Napoleonic Wars and all the rest of it. So in terms of party, what you've got now is a Tory party revived. A Tory party revived under slightly different principles, focusing now on the church, on stability, on the British constitution, on the, the traditional power of the monarch, but much amended because Parliament is now de facto much more powerful because of all that taxation and war in the 18th century. But I think Thomas Macaulay at this later says of the Tories and, uh, and Whigs at this stage that one is the guardian of liberty, the other of order, that both are needed. The Tory is the ship, the Whig is the sail, which is pretty much what you were saying earlier, that that's now the division really. And in the face of the French Revolution, Pitt essentially becomes a Tory because even though he does things like supporting the end of slavery and Catholic emancipation, and indeed he resigns over Catholic emancipation because George III does the dirty on him and doesn't do what he promises to do and refuses to sign off Catholic emancipation. So Pitt resigns over that finally. So although he's got those attributes, which you kind of think of as Whiggish, change, he's very much about stability and control and beating Napoleon and the nation gets behind him. So he's seen as a Tory. Well, it's one of the key attributes for Tories, Conservatives kind of going forward, isn't it? It's pragmatism as well. It's a case of doing what you have to do to stave off things maybe collapsing later. So there's this level of pragmatism, which isn't necessarily built by ideology per se, but yes. it's a case of we need to do this now, or we need to gradually do this to stave off radical change where we might lose our position. I think that's a really important point, actually. And, and somebody like Thatcher changes all that. But anyway, that's that's for later. So yes, I think you're right. Pragmatism is the watchword of British politics. And, and it, it's one of the things which really marks politics as being very different from, from American in that regard, that going into a lot of political debates in America, they talk about principles and ideology. And then that means that they can be blind to pragmatic moves because they're so siloed into a certain level of, of, of ideology. And our right of center politics is historically and yes you're completely right to mention thatcher who's a radical and maybe somebody like liz truss who's a radical but primarily it's around pragmatism you can be right of center be pragmatic but still raise taxes where it's very hard for a right-leaning politician in the united states to to overtly raise taxes because they come with it from an ideological point of view OK, so we better keep moving on, because as you say, we've been rattling on for ages. There is one new terminology in politics which enters because of the French Revolution, something that you use naturally without even thinking about it, left and right, because that's where the factions oh, in yes, the French of Revolution course, of course. Set, set. So yes. you're beginning to mm -hmm. get that idea of left and right, although well, it's you know, slow to take on in the UK, but it does. The French Revolution helps focus... English Toryism on church, loyalism, patriotic Britishness. And it's from this age that really the Tory party owns patriotism to the way that drives me up the wall. But anyway, there you go. And so we get a period now of Tory dominance. Lord Liverpool 
is very dominant. He he's a very long-serving prime minister, and you get sort of two phases of his role. But he was delightfully described by Disraeli as the arch mediocrity, which is very funny. And Dizzy is the most quotable British politician ever. I defy you to find somebody better than than Disraeli. But actually, he's not that. He cannot be that mediocre because he he's in power for a very long time. There are two people think about two periods. One a period of real repression, 1815 to 1821, high Toryism, crush the people, keep order, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. This is what we've got to Toll do. Toll Puddle Martyrs and all of that. Toll Puddle Martyrs and Battle of Peterloo. Mm. So and you get the emergence of a very strong radical strain. So the Whig Party begins to be defined by centre-left and a radical the parties now begin to be the stage where the Whigs need to be aware of what the radicals are saying. And they, in order to succeed, they need to pay some attention and pull them in a bit. Meanwhile, the Tories will have these really ultras, these really high Tories that will really focus around the Reform Act and try and refuse any kind of progress whatsoever. And so the centre-right has to deal with the ultras. The centre-left have to deal with the radicals. So I'm going to quote from this period a poem at you. OK, are you ready for this? With bated breath. England in 1819. An old, mad, blind, despised and dying king. Princes, the dregs of their dull race who flow through public scorn. Mud from a muddy spring. Rulers who neither see nor feel nor know, but leech-like to their fainting country cling till they drop blind in blood without a blow. A people starved and stabbed in the untilled field. An army whom liberticide and prey makes as two-edged sword to all who wield. I could go on, but I'm going to stop. That is Percy Shelley. Great, absolutely fantastic poet. And you've got this real radicalism, which really puts the winds up the Tories and leads to repression. But then there's another period where the Tory party, a more liberal Toryism between 1822 and 1827, which leads us towards the Irish, because the Irish have a deep impact throughout the 19th century on British politics, because, of course, they've been repressed for hundreds of years. And more and more, many people are beginning to realise that this is not just unjust, but unsustainable. And so we get all these arguments about Catholic emancipation. And actually, it's the good old Duke of Wellington who's about as, who makes Attila the Hun look woke. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's him who gives in and says, right, okay, we're going to do the Catholic emancipation thing. And over Charles IV's dead body, he fights it tooth and nail. And, but he, even Wellington, is not up to the demands now for reform of the franchise. And we're talking about the run-up to the 1832 Reform Act and the end of our episode hoves to, into sight. And, 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 you know, one thing which you did touch on this, because you did talk about Pitt the Younger resigning over Catholic emancipation, that the one thing which we, we do really need to put in the minds of the listener is that in, in 1801, the country changes. It's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And the Irish Parliament now sits in Westminster. So not only is there is this issue about Catholic emancipation, but also you have Irish MPs sat, sat in Westminster. So you, you're completely correct. For just under 100 years now of British parliamentary history, Irish affairs are going to be a, a key part of, uh, of driving the parliamentary narrative. Yeah, absolutely right. Sorry, you're absolutely right. I should have mentioned the Act of Union in 1801. And there are a lot of I Irish MPs as well. There's a 100 of them. Mm. And quite quickly, they begin to be grouped into a, a more radical set that is beginning to look initially for emancipation and an end to, to persecution, then more rights, then home rule until independence. So there's enormous pressure now for reform, driven by things like the Battle of Peterloo and the Tollpoddle Martyrs and so on. We get def definitively now to the stage where the monarch can no longer choose their own ministers. If it, it was 
probably pretty clear before, but now it's definite because George IV is desperate to keep the Whigs out and stop reform. So he asks Robert Peel and he asks the Duke of Wellington to form a party and both refuse because they know that neither of them can control a majority in Parliament. The Great Reform Act is quite strange because it's done... It's done by the Whigs, but you've got to remember that the Whigs are still all aristocrats. They maintain the political supremacy of their class, although they've been in the political jungle for ages. And part of it is about getting power back, but also part of it is about the fear of revolution. The French Revolution still looms large in people's mind, and they're now worried that if they don't do something, there will be a revolution in Britain and they've got to do something. So the Whigs believe that their party had a sort of almost special and hereditary mission to secure the people's freedom. So ideology does go along with that. So we get get Lord Grey, who pushes through the Reform Act and says afterwards, I have kept my word with the nation. It's a little like the barons and King John with the Magna Carta, that's the way the Grey looks looks at it. He's acting on the people's behalf, even though he's in the baronial party. So we've come to a stage where politics is no longer entirely driven by those family networks and relationships. Ideology is now now much more important, even though Whig and Tory are still the names. Mm. So the Reform Act... Kett sometimes, by historians, gets quite a bad press because it doesn't change that much, especially when you think about it in, in modern terms. But for most of the 18th century, Britain has been the most representative form of government in, in Europe. And after 1832, it will remain so. But then it will, Britain will fall behind. The next Reform Act is not until 1867, and by that stage, there's far more a wider franchise is in other countries in Europe than in Britain. Mm-hmm. So it gets a bit of a bad press because it doesn't change it that much. The, the franchise is extended, but actually the people who have really campaigned for it, people who will begin, who will later become chartists, the working classes, they feel very let down by the act because they don't get the vote. The vote is extended, but not that far down the social scale into the middle classes, but not the lower middle classes and uh, the working classes. But it changes everything because it helps establish establish party politics because now there are much more people that you need to whip in and get, get to vote. The situation in boroughs in particular is transformed. Now they're much more open and, and you've really got to organise people. By about 1835, so just a few years after the Reform Act, we're now in a situation where only 27 MPs out of the about 600 MPs in Parliament, only 27 now don't vote consistently for a particular party. So now you have got a pretty firm, previously, you know, could be 200, 250, 300 who didn't vote for a particular party. Now it's only 27. You basically, parties are are here to stay. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think also one element which we haven't really spoken about is obviously England, Britain is going to be the first country to have the Industrial Revolution. And not only does that bring wealth, but it increases the size of of towns into cities. And one of the reasons for for the Great Reform Act is that the cities don't have representation. Birmingham, Manchester, there are there are no, no no MPs. So one of the consequences of that act is then to bring in the urban middle classes, which is kind of you, your point that you were saying. There's a wider cohort of people who now have the vote, and these are the urban middle classes of the new emerging engines of the economy, the new cities, your Bristols, your Birmingham's, your Liverpool's, etc. And as you said, this is going to have a profound change in, in terms of politics kind of going forward, which is the reason, and I know you've still got something to say, but it's the reason why I said I think we should divide up this period so we do pre the Great Reform mm. Act. No, that's absolutely right. I think that's a very good point to make. Actually, Queen Victoria's favourite PM, Lord Melbourne, says... 
people who talk much of railroads and bridges are generally liberals, which is, you know, essentially what you're saying, that you've got this industrial revolution, all these people who have been disenfranchised so long and now have the vote. And actually the impact in Wales and Scotland is even more transformative because although actually a smaller percentage of Scots get the vote than in England... Scotland was very much dominated by a magnate class. And this idea that you've now got to go and appeal to a public sphere is absolutely revolutionary in Scotland and transforms politics there. So it has a real impact, the Reform Act, even though by modern standards, it doesn't look as though the franchise is extended that much. We're nowhere near uh, one person, one vote. But local party organisation grows. So you get the Conservative Carlton Club formed in 1832. And that is what becomes Conservative General Office. So you've now got a, an organisation that organises elections and tries to make sure, you know, that they win. And the Whigs take uh, one of their posh clubs, Brooks Club, and they call it the Reform Club in 1836. Local politics gets invigorated too. 1835, Municipal Corporations Act. So there's much more local politics. And local politics will be a real factor in 19th century politics. People like Joseph Chamberlain, for example, the big Birmingham man who has real power because of his local affiliation. And the chief whip finally appears in 1835. So now the idea of a, a whip really organ responsible for organising party in Parliament, now they're an important position in a party. Mm. So 1832 weave a transformation of politics which will run through the rest of the century which we will talk about next time we will indeed we will indeed just as as my as my role as being the person who listens to you blather on but he's acutely aware that some 50 percent of our listeners are american and they always like to be included i think you made an interesting point about the franchise and that britain is the most representative in europe most definitely in the 18th century in the early 19th century but then places like prussia are actually going to go way past us but by the middle of middle of the century just for our and france yes yeah. and, and france of course with its various revolutions but just to keep our americans happy non-property holding white males could vote in the vast majority of states by the end of the 1820s so we are somewhat behind our, our, our american cousins in in that regard yeah it takes us 100 years to, to catch mm -hmm. up basically all right so I, i've quite enjoyed that david no no no, 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 Did you? no i enjoyed it because i talked know, constantly well, you know it, it, i always feel like I, i'm privileged because I, I you know i get a crowd of podcasts i think you're privileged too royfield <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always good me watching your white male privilege david uh, <laughs> ah, that's mine yes as you yes, as get you in. pontificate and educate and ruminate over history and i for one quite like it okay we'll be back next time Probably I'll take the lead next time, but I'm not sure. Royfield will probably interrupt even more than he interrupted this this week. And we'll talk about 1832 all the way through to 1918. And we'll see you there. So it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from... Me. Take care, everyone. And these are the things that made England. England. And St. George. These are the things that made England. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.